It's good to be back. I've enjoyed my time here at Ladyfield last year and this year again. And uh, it's a real delight. It's a pleasure to be able to come and share. This is a good hymn to, to, to end with. And, uh, you know, just before we come to the sermon, uh, what no eye has seen nor man of mine can see that which God has for us. Yet that has been revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that good news? In fact, we're going to be touching on that theme a little bit here this morning. But what I want to do is just, I'm a church historian. I, I, I need to confess that. It's always good to confess right at the outset. As a church historian, you always want to frame things historically. And one of the men, one of the great heroes for me of the faith, even though I don't agree with everything he, he would have ever taught, nor would, for that matter, I expect anyone to agree with what I teach in every point, but the man Martin Luther was a man who was bold like a lion. And uh, in fact, just recently we watched this movie uh, at Cordeo um, on Martin Luther. And I just look at that man's life and I say, if I had half of his courage, one tenth of his courage, oh, would, I, would I be used by God? And one of the themes that he really addressed strongly was birthed out of Galatians, along with Romans. Those two books were his major centers of focus in all that led to the Reformation that caused... Uh, turning away from some of the things from the medieval ages that had just been crippling the church, crippling the body of Christ. False beliefs, false understandings, false commitments. And it was the gospel that he turned back to, that he found in Galatians, that he found in Romans, that he found, of course, in the gospels themselves and the teaching of Jesus. And we'll come back to Luther at the end here. But I wanted to at least say that... Um, the book of Galatians was, was one that he kept basically savoring through his whole life with a series of updated commentaries. And so uh, in, in line with Luther, we're going to take a look at crucifixion with Christ, the goal that God has for us. Let's pray. Father, I submit to you my own heart. I submit to you our time together. And I pray that your spirit would take what we have here, uh, unfold it for us, give us a sense of appetite. Uh, in responsiveness uh, by the work of your spirit. We need that. Apart from you, we can't do anything. So here we are, your people. You are God, and we rest in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, we come to verse 11 in Galatians chapter 2. Uh, there on page 822 in, in your text. Um, if um, you want to take a look at that... We're bold beyond words here. We're going to try and squeeze in the rest of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3 here. So what time? Oh, dear. Let's move ahead. We find here this scene of a controversy, a debate in Antioch. And we picked up a little bit of this uh, last week. Uh, but what we have now is this dramatic moment where... We have Paul saying, I went and had my, my gospel, which came from Christ. I was an apostle because it was Christ himself who taught me. But it was vetted by those who are considered the pillars of the church. In fact, I think it was James, not the brother of Jesus, but Peter, James, and John, who were there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Because this would have been before uh, James was put to death by Herod. James, the, the, brother, the son of Zebedee, uh, the brother of John. And in that, in that setting, in that arrangement, there in chapter 11, Paul is, is um, basically saying, here's what I've been teaching from Christ. What do you think? 
And the answer was, this is, a, this is the right gospel. Well done. So that's why it's so shocking when we come here to chapter 2 and we discover this change of tone. Uh, change of tone, my goodness, change of direction. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. And this is the apostle Peter. What on earth has happened here that the apostle Peter should be confronted by this upstart fellow from Antioch, from Tarsus, who's ready to challenge him at a fundamental level. He said, I posed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Um, certain men came from James. Now, this would have been James, by now, the brother of Jesus. That is, the one who, more than anyone, seemed to have become the, the key figure in the church in Jerusalem. Let's frame this a little bit historically. In fact, I need to set the scene here a little bit for this debate. It'll be important for us to understand it. And it's a little complicated, and it would, do, it would do you well to read the book of Acts, I don't know, four or five times, maybe in the next few weeks. Uh, or Just read the book of Acts. And what we find is that the question is whether this episode is a response to what occurs in chapter 15, where we see there's the need for Paul and Barnabas to go to Jerusalem to, to have this issue settled about the use of the law, the Judaizers, as Peter talked about last week, trying to insert a new gospel. We don't think that that's, absolute, that's, that's the episode that's being talked about here. In fact, here's what we think as we reconstruct it. And here's a key reason why we think that the episode, as Peter mentioned last week, uh, that is being talked about here in Galatians of... Uh, Paul and Barnabas going to Jerusalem had to do with their taking a gift from Antioch up to Jerusalem because of a famine. The reason we believe that was the event that's being referenced here is because by the time we get to chapter 15, the church was on one page. There was no disagreement about what constituted the gospel. And if Paul had had that available, he would have played that as his trump card. I don't know what a trump card is, but I'm told it's important in a card game. But that would have been his punchline. That would have been his fundamental argument. He would have said, we've already got this settled. We don't even need to talk about it. But in fact, he is the one who inaugurates the discussion when this group come down from Jerusalem, from James, and apparently startled the church because of the change of direction they force. Now, what was it that we think was going on? What we see is that there was a, well, we know for sure that a lot of people were converted from Judaism, 3,000 in a day, after Christ was raised from the dead and the early church ministries were very strong. But a number of those people wanted to hold on to their Jewish heritage. And they considered that continuing as Jews was the key to having access to Christ. That if you didn't become a Jew, if you weren't proselytized, even if you were a Gentile, and enter into Judaism, you really have no access to the one who is the Messiah, the Christ of the Jews. And so that was the gateway that they set in place. And the question was whether that was legitimate. Well, in the meantime, there's this massive nationalistic movement going on. What we call a group of people, we call the Zealots. Who are the Zealots? They wanted to reconstruct a rebellion that had occurred a couple of hundred years earlier with Jacob Maccabeus and some others, where they had overthrown the Syrian rulers who had been in charge of the, the country at that time. And they thought, we need to have another ruler 
another king, another leader, a charismatic figure, maybe Jesus, who could come and throw out the Romans because then we could be free once again. Simon, one of the disciples, was called Simon the Zealot, probably converted from his devotion to zealotry, which was a natural formal movement. In fact, the movement came to its complete fruition in 70 AD when a Roman general came down and basically wiped out through massive warfare throughout the whole country. It was a long fight, and it ended up at a place called, um, oh, where was that, Megiddo, where finally a group of the zealot warriors were on this fortress that had been built by Herod the Great, and finally they all, probably a thousand or more, committed suicide when they realized the Romans were building a ramp and there was no, no way out. And so rather than become prisoners, they just committed suicide. That, that was the group of people who were called the Zealots. Okay? Now, here's the problem back in Jerusalem. And James would have faced this as he's working primarily with the Jews. James, the half-brother of Jesus. He would have uh, sent some people down because the problem was occurring that these nationalists were really antagonistic towards the Gentiles. Yet here was Christianity starting to bring Gentiles into relationship with this Messiah, the claimed Messiah, with Jesus. And some of the Jews had converted and seen Jesus as their Messiah, but they were being pressured by the nationalists to say, but don't mess with those Gentiles, because in our nationalism, we are distinct from the Gentiles and must always remain away from them because they're unclean, we are clean. We're kosher, they're not kosher. Okay, do you sense the tension? So Paul, of course, faced that himself. We picked that up in chapter 21 of Acts. When he goes to Jerusalem, because of the pressure of those Jewish forces, some of whom proclaimed themselves Christians but weren't really, Paul actually was prepared to go back into his Jewish heritage, take some vows and do some ceremonies that reflected his Judaism for the sake of the church, in order to avoid controversies there. So Paul gets the point that's being made here when these people come down from Jerusalem and say, could you help us out? Because if word about what's going on here in Antioch gets back to the people there in Jerusalem, that will really put the church under serious pressure. Could you just kind of be more kosher? Okay, it's a small request. They weren't trying to say uh, that you're going to be justified by the law, but rather just could you be more Jewish and could you stay kosher? That's a key piece. Because Peter certainly is not going to go back against what he had seen in his vision when, the, you know, the, remember the day when the animals came down and he was told take up and eat and, and he says, I can't, they're unclean, they're not kosher. And what did the Lord say? No, no, what the Lord has made clean, don't you call unclean. Okay, so Peter got that. He was the one who caught that and carried it into the church, and the church agreed. We agree with that. So this was not for salvation, for justification, but for the sake of, well, just political wisdom. And Paul himself, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, will say, look, for the Jews, I became like a Jew. But that's not appropriate for Antioch. Why? Because in Antioch, what's really going on there? It's mostly a Gentile church. And for Peter and for Barnabas, of all people, who was the companion, the one who had come and brought Paul from Tarsus and said, come and help share the gospel with the Gentiles as the two of us can work together. What happened is 
Even Barnabas backed away. They started meeting at the tables that were kosher and to visit and be with that group of leaders, Peter, Barnabas and others. You had to, if you were a Gentile, start to go through the process of being cleansed in order to be allowed to eat with them. What does that do to the fellowship of the church? Just splits it right down the middle. And what does Paul say? God forbid that this should ever happen. What are you thinking, Peter? What are you thinking? You know better. It's that sharp. It's that sharp. See, he knows that Peter isn't trying to say we get justified this way. It's how you live after you're justified that was the key issue. And so that sets up a conversation that goes on. Now, what was Peter doing there? As we reconstruct this from chapter 11, we go to chapter 12 in Acts. If we had more time, we'd actually page through it. But what happens is, remember, James and Peter are taken by Herod, not Herod the Great, but a later Herod, and are imprisoned. James, the half-brother of Jesus, is put to death. Peter, in a miracle, is led out by the angels and is able to escape. But guess what? He is sent away, leave Jerusalem. It's not safe for you here. So he goes down to Caesarea. And guess what? It's easy to catch a boat from Caesarea to sail a couple of hundred miles on up to Antioch, which is also near the Mediterranean. And that's probably what accounts for the visit that Peter is having there when we find this. Basically, it's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. What Paul is talking about is a visit to Antioch by Peter. It's during this time, later on, by the time we get to chapter 15, who's living in Jerusalem again? And who, by the way, is dead, eaten by worms, no less, at the end of chapter 12 in Acts? Herod. So the one who was threatening Peter's life is now off the scene. So this would account for the trip that Peter has to Antioch. It's just his time away from Jerusalem where he goes to see how the church is doing. But it's before the council in Jerusalem and they haven't thought through what to do with the issue of how do we live. Though we're justified by Christ, not by the law, but how do we live now? What does it look like? Do we still try to live kosher lives? Because sometimes it's just convenient to do that. And Paul is the one who says you can't do that because the law is what put an end to the law. In other words, the instructions that we can find in Scripture will tell us that the law has no bearing on what it is to be people who live by faith in Jesus Christ. And so we carry forward then after this controversy and Paul is basically confronting them and saying, what are you thinking? Don't you realize that by claiming to be committed to the law, you're violating the law and you're violating the truth of the gospel. And in fact, if you go back and start keeping the laws of Judaism, the devotions to kosher and righteousness, you are making goodness the measure of worship and not Christ himself. Your faith is in your goodness and not in Christ and the work that he does on the cross. And that's the key piece that he wants to underscore. So as he unpacks that, he says, and he speaks here, he says, you know, if you're forcing Gentiles to follow Jewish customs, you've turned Jesus now into one who's going to press people back into something that's now totally obsolete. The law is not the measure of righteousness. In fact, he makes the point later on that the law comes 430 years after the man who is the paradigm for living by faith has already passed away. Abraham is the man who teaches us, is the paradigm of a life lived by faith. And he lived 430 years before any laws at Mount Sinai were ever written. 
So the laws are not the basis for faith. But let's unpack it stage by stage, step by step. So the problem here is to deal with this challenge that they're facing from Jerusalem. Paul says, don't be hypocrites. Don't turn back. You have been living like a Gentile. Don't go back and start to live like a Jew because that forces the Gentiles to live like Jews, which is to undercut the gospel. So what is the gospel? The question we have is, what is it that Paul had taught in Galatians? Because if you haven't noticed... I didn't have this read, but here's what follows after the reading from this morning. Picking it up in chapter 3, verse 1. I dare not do this in any church, towards a church, but can you imagine what it felt like when Paul wrote this? Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Whoa, he's strong, isn't he? Peter reflected that last week. This is strong stuff. He's not using any halfway measures because it's crucial. And here's his point. He had taught the Galatians better. You see, in chapter 13, before chapter 15, when this whole controversy is finally settled in the Jerusalem Council of the book of Acts, chapter 15 in Acts, we have this episode where they go and minister to the region called, we now speak of as the region of Galatia or that they spoke of as the region of Galatia. It's where a bunch of Celts had come and settled. And the Celts, they had their own language, they had their own culture, were the ones that uh, Paul and Barnabas had ministered to in chapter 13. Then comes the unsettling group of Judaizers who seem to be just more than anxious to say, you've got to live kosher lives. Even if you're a Christian, even if you're Gentile, you've got to live righteously. And we'll tell you what righteousness looks like. We'll give you every behavior you're supposed to follow. comes from the Old Testament. We'll show you. And by using the laws as their focus, they were basically drawing people away from faith in Christ to a faith in righteousness, a faith in their own personal goodness. A faith that the, you know, this, I think it's going to be talked about tonight, this idea, good teacher, what good things must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And what did Jesus do? Confronted that and says, no one is good but God alone. You've got to get it right. It's not laws that are the basis of living righteously. That would be a little bit like worshiping a light bulb because the law turns on lights and shows darkness. In fact, you have to use the law lawfully. Peter talks, Paul talks about that in 1 Timothy, for instance, chapter 1. We know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. People for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. It's not for people who have the life of Christ. That's not the point of the law. The law is like a light that turns on and all the cockroaches start to flee. It's for the exposure of sin, but it's not that we worship the light bulb in order to be righteous. We worship Christ. And so that's the point. Don't mistake the law for righteousness. It just exposes sinfulness. And so what Paul wants to do now is say, don't you remember what I taught you? And we're actually going to find his lesson book. He's going to walk through using scripture to show how the law undoes the law. The law puts to end, puts an end to the use of the law for even spiritual life, not just for justification. So let's unpack that. He says, I would like to learn just one thing. We're picking it up in 3-2. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit? 
Are you now trying to maintain or to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing? If it really was for nothing, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you have heard? Do you hear the contrast he's making? And what's at the center of the contrast that he's making? The spirit, the spirit, the spirit. Three times. He says, this is the key to going forward. In fact, that is what explains what we've skipped over in the verse that is really the pivotal verse for our text today. Verse 20 of chapter 2, for I'm crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. And I don't set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law. Christ died for nothing. You see. When I'm crucified with Christ. What happens. Is I enter into a relationship of participation. How? By the spirit who dwells within me. By faith. I am one who comes to Christ and says. Apart from you. I can't do anything. I must have you. I find that in myself there is no good thing. The law illuminates that. Surely the law helps me understand that in me there is no good thing. But I don't come to the law to find the solution. I come instead on bended knee and say, God, what do I do? I'm a broken man. I'm a sinner. Please, what do I do? And God says, I'll tell you what, it's what I do. I'm crucified for your sins. And with that crucifixion, The role of the law ends because it was through the law that the crucifixion had its significance. And that's what Paul wants to unfold. That is, we participate in the life of Christ. Paul will talk about that, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he says, what are you doing talking to the Corinthians who were licentious? And Paul is no proponent of licentiousness. And he knew that that was an issue even the Galatians had to deal with. Don't get off into immorality. And to the Corinthians, he says, don't you get it? How does he handle immorality that's going on there? Is there going to a local temple and some prostitution is part of the worship there? So they worship Jesus and, you know, that sort of thing. And he says, you can't do that. Don't you realize that you are one with the Lord, one body with him, because you are united to him by the spirit who dwells within you. And that what he's saying there is that we, when we are awakened, he's really harking back to John chapter 3, to Nicodemus. Nick, don't you get it? You've got to be born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. If you don't have the spirit, you're dead as a doornail. But with the spirit, it's like a breeze coming in and bringing life because the spirit is the source of life and we are united. And there in first Corinthians six, Paul harks back to Genesis chapter two, verse 24. He says, the man shall leave his father and his mother. The two shall become one. And he he uses that in reference to us having the spirit come in and becoming one with us. I'm an old bachelor. and I, I still get it. Union with Christ is the union of his spirit 
uppercase S, and my spirit. And that's why he mentions three times the spirit. It's not the law that gives you righteousness. It's the spirit of God who works in you. And it's the spirit. He is the one who brings the life and love of Christ. It's the God who loves you and sends the spirit. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And the spirit is the one who carries that life of the son into our lives and begins to change us from the inside out. Will we live righteously with the presence of God in us? You think about it for a minute. So we're not talking here about turning our backs on the law for licentious purposes, but rather to get the fact that the law simply illuminates darkness, but it doesn't do anything to produce righteousness. Because the law becomes an intermediary if we're not careful. So it's like a mirror. I'm going, how righteous am I today? A little more righteous than yesterday. Kind of blew it on that one, but otherwise I'm doing fine. I say throw the mirror down and start to set your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Do you get it? It's who you're gazing at, not what you're looking at. It's not your own righteousness. Otherwise, you're worshiping yourself inadvertently while you're claiming to worship Christ. And that's the issue of Galatians. The gospel is look to the one who comes. So he unpacks it. Here's what he taught the Galatians before they went off the rails. And we can trace that picking it up here in verse 6. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So uh, I kind of feel like I'm racing here because there's so much to talk about in so little time. I'll just, I'll just tell you to have, you'll have to read it on your own. But here's the snapshot pieces of what he taught the Galatians. He said, first of all, consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That happened in Genesis chapter 15. It was a key moment. Until that time, we could say that Abraham clearly lived a life in which he followed God in some measure. Behaviorally, he followed God. He left Ur of the Chaldees. He went to Haram. He then ultimately got down to the place that he was meant to be. God had promised him back in chapter 12, which we in fact recognize occurred back in Ur of the Chaldees years before, and said, look at, in fact, it's actually cited here by Paul. This is part of his lesson. This is what he would have taught the Galatians. He talks about this as the gospel that was preached beforehand. Verse 8, the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And by the way, nations, if it's translated, really means the word what, was, what is used as a word for Gentiles. All the Gentiles will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So let's pick that up. That occurs, that's reported in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. But in fact, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, harks back to Genesis chapter 3. Remember that episode? Dramatic moment. You can be like God. You can determine for yourself what is no good and evil for yourself. You can be your own moral agent. You can determine goodness and live righteously. And by the way, that's still promoted today, if you haven't noticed. Uh, I come from the United States, the source of all things <clears throat> questionable. And I can remember living in Idaho once when there was a dam collapse, a reservoir, flooded a valley, killed lots of people, wiped out homes. 
and a group of people who believed in Jesus Christ as informed by an angel who came with a new gospel called Mormons. That they could live righteously and be very righteous people before any federal aid could come to help those people in the flooded areas. It was such an area so heavily Mormon that the Mormon church had come in and done everything beyond what the government could supply. Their goodness was beyond the measure of Christian goodness if you want to know what goodness looks like. And that's why a lot of Mormons are capturing Christians who are more concerned with goodness than with Christ. Do you get the point here? So it's not the goodness that's the key issue. So what Paul is concerned with here is he's saying, look at what it was is that Paul knew that the Genesis 3 issue was the critical piece. And what was the promise there? That the serpent would come to a day when his seed would be crushed by the seed of a woman. And that's the blessing that we have looked forward to. But in the course of that crushing, the seed of the woman, a unique idea, if you haven't thought about it, is going to be bruised. And that's the promise of blessing that is going to come. And finally, Abraham, of course, was saying, what about that seed idea? You know, because years later, he looks back in chapter 15, and it's now been decades since he received the promise of chapter 12, which included a promise of a seed, an offspring. And he says, Lord, what about the offspring idea? And what does the Lord do? Remember what he does? He says, come on outside. See the stars up there? Can you count those stars? That's how many offspring you will have. And at that moment, what what happened? Abraham, who was self-concerned, somehow had a change in his life where he aligned himself with the righteousness of God. He believed God. He trusted God. He entrusted himself. He responded to God's word. He had heard God's word for decades, but now he gives himself to it. He says, oh, oh, oh. He believes God and has counted to him as righteousness. What was the key to that? A gaze. What is the key to spiritual life? A gaze. Where do we gaze? At the mirror? How righteous am I today? Or do we look at Christ who gives us the righteousness of God? So the lesson goes on as Paul unpacks it here. Let's unfold it here a little bit more. He says, well, so that's the gospel. So all of you who rely on observing the law, we're in verse 10 here, are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything that is in the book of the law. And there he's citing Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. He, it's, a, it's an episode where there's blessings and cursings given. And what Moses does, by this time we're up to the time of Moses, well after Abraham, and into the time of the law. And the question is, does the law accomplish anything? Yeah, sure, it makes you guilty. That's what it does. It makes you terribly guilty. And cursed is anyone who doesn't keep the whole law. So Paul says, remember how I taught you that? Don't lose track of that. Then he goes on to his next point. He says, verse 11, clearly no one is justified before God by the law because it is written, the just shall live by faith. See, he says, if it was through law keeping, then the book of Habakkuk would have been all about how to behave righteously. But in fact, in the book of Habakkuk, we did a look at that last year. He said the key to faith is simply to do what? 
trust the God who is going to do some things that are going to be tough to swallow if you read the book of Habakkuk. But the just person, the just man, the just woman shall live by faith. What is faith? Looking at Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. And setting my gaze on him. Just John 3, just as a serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so when I'm lifted up, I'll draw everyone to me. He's in effect saying, it's gazing at me, not at your righteousness. That's the key to living your spiritual life. So, Paul wants to go on and unpack that a little bit more. He says, well, so remember what else I taught you. The righteous shall live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. And again, he's citing there a text of scripture from Deuteronomy. And he then says, finally, he goes to a punchline. This is Deuteronomy 21. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Now, that just seems so arbitrary. Where did that come from? Here's the point. He says, remember that point about anyone who doesn't keep the whole law? If you're going to play with the law, then go whole hog with the law or don't use it at all. That's what Paul is saying. So if you want to look at the law... Make that your object of gaze. Then you better do it perfectly. But the one who doesn't do it perfectly is cursed. Now, what is a person like me who certainly has never kept the whole law? I mean, even if I tried, I couldn't do it. This morning, I would have broken it. Who knows how? But what, what happens with that is I'm now cursed. And then comes this promise of Deuteronomy that if anyone is hung on a tree, they're only hung on a tree because they've been accursed by God. Okay, And what does it say there? That explains how the law ends. Because the law comes to an end when someone who is accursed is hung on a tree. So who was hung on a tree? But who never broke a law in his life? Jesus. So how do I have access to the righteousness of of God, the justice, the goodness of God. The answer is not by my keeping righteousness, focusing on my goodness. Others can do that who are not even Christians. But instead, I look to the one who is hung on the cross and whose clothing of sin is he wearing? Mine. Mine. I am crucified with Christ. Yet I live not by my flesh, but by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's where my gaze is. It's on Christ. And that puts an end to the law. So how do I live? I live by looking to Christ. I live by responding to Christ. Paul goes on and he says, you know, it's so much more in this text that we can't get into. He talks about the promise and the rest of the chapter is about the promise. He said, you realize the promise has always been there from Genesis 3. He picks it up in Genesis 12 and it goes on and it talks here about the reality that we have as well as a promise. He just treats this as an implicit passage, but he's ultimately cites the promise of Exodus 36, 27, that the Spirit is going to come. The Spirit is the one who will bring the transformation that we're looking for. So we recognize that I used to be a sinner and now, oh Lord, what about my sin? The answer is the Spirit of God will change you from the inside out. It's the promise of the life of God within that changes us, not the work that we do to change ourselves. 
That's the key that Paul is talking about. The error of Galatians is that they were looking in the wrong direction. They were using a mirror and were no longer looking at Christ. And so as Paul talks about that, he says, you know, the seed that was promised to Abraham, the seed was singular. And that seed was Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the promise was fulfilled. That's the bottom line. So the real question is, where is our focus? Verse 22. But the scriptures declare that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe who set our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith and everything that we do. How do I live today? By trying to be righteous or by setting my eyes on the one who loves me and saying, Lord, I want to please you today. I want to walk with you today. I delight in you today. It's in you that I find my rest. If you live by the law, you know what you're doing. Is that illegal? I don't think it is. So therefore, I can ignore God for this period of time because after all, I'm not doing anything that's illegal. Biblically, and you can act as if God is really not that concerned with a personal relationship. That's the problem that the Galatians were facing. And that's what happened to Paul and Barnabas. They slipped back into the idea that righteousness was aimed at behaviors, not at the change from the inside out. Well, I'm over time. I, I knew I was going to do this. Let me just let me just finish by going back to Luther. Luther recognized that from Genesis 3 onward, there's this instinct to say, I can be like God. I can myself become a person, an agent of what is good and evil. And I can certainly come to God and offer what I have, and that will surely please him. And in fact, a guy named Aristotle, who was a pagan, didn't even pretend to be a Jew or a Christian or anything else, summarized it better than anyone else. He said, you know, Here's what we do. We become just by practicing just deeds. That's what it is to be a good person in his Nicomachean ethics. And what did Luther say to that? First of all, he says, if I didn't know Aristotle was a man, I would think he was the devil himself. And he says, you know, that idea that just become just by doing just deeds, righteousness. He says, that's not true. The just become righteous by being made just. Then we do just deeds. Do you see the difference? I like Luther. Let's go with his version of the gospel as he reads Galatians. Let's pray. Father, I submit this all to you. and Thank you in Jesus' name for your grace, your love, your care, the mercy represented at the cross. I am crucified with Christ. And I pray that we would look to the cross, have our identity in Christ, and respond to the love expressed by you through your Son, And not use the law as a crutch to make us more righteous when in fact that's a dead end. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.